One thing that occurs to me these days and has been kind of cycling through my mind over and over again as I get replies on Twitter from accounts, you know, with, you know, resistance in the title and pictures of Robert Mueller, you know, pointing very, uh, you know, very menacingly, presumably at Donald Trump as their cover photo, is that, you know, we've seen this movie before in Canada. We, we had the resistance. It peaked in maybe, you know, 2010, 2011 in the midst of the Harper era, I really came into contact with the resistance before I had kind of the language or the knowledge or the experience to really think about it in these terms in first year university. For our American listeners and non-Canadian listeners, it was 2008 when I started university. It was a few months before the election of Barack Obama. Canada had a federal election. The Conservatives had only been in power in a minority government for a couple of years and they won a slightly increased minority government uh, in the fall of 2008, after which they were nearly defeated by a coalition of the Liberals and the NDP after they tabled this crazy budget statement full of all this menacing, nasty right-wing stuff, despite not having a parliamentary majority. One of the things they wanted to do was get rid of, as I, if I'm remembering rightly, they wanted to get rid of pay equity in the federal civil, civil service. They wanted to end the per vote subsidy, so public financing for political parties, which was basically designed to take out the funding for the Liberals and the NDP. They were nearly replaced, but uh, liberal incompetence and various other things annulled that possibility. You know what I remember? Do you uh, remember there was that night, so the coalition government was announced, yeah. and all the parties released a video announcing it? That's right. And the Conservatives had a, a, a very beautiful video where it was like a crane shot into Stephen Harper in his office, and he was reading a book, and he put it down and said, oh, I, hello there. I know where, yeah, hi, didn't see you there. I know where the story's going. And then there was Stéphane Dion, the liberal leader's video, which was... I think 15 or 20 minutes late and then it started halfway through the video yep. and it looked like a hostage video. Yeah, there's a book actually which details uh, by which was written by Brian Topp who was an NDP strategist involved in this at the time and and uh, yeah, he details some of the uh, some of the background of that video. But yeah, the Dion Liberals couldn't even record a YouTube video during this moment of national crisis. Dion's chief message was, "Now don't worry, I'm not going to be prime minister." Yeah, I mean, this was the thing. He was so unpopular that him attempting to stay on was just, it was very easy that conservatives said that he was illegitimate. I mean, they spun a whole bunch of lies about how this was a coup d'etat. All of this was very formative for me as a young student. And where this ended up was that the conservatives basically used parliamentary mechanism called prorogation by which the sitting government can basically just suspend parliament because um, they were going to, I mean, they did lose the confidence of the House. There was just no vote to formalize that. And they prorogued again about a year later uh, in the midst of another, albeit slightly lesser uh, scandal, a scandal nonetheless. And this is when I got involved along with uh, a friend of mine, a few friends of mine in these, these organizing meetings for rallies to protest the prorogation of parliament. And this is when I met, you know, the people I'm going to call Canada's resistance. <laughs> a lot of them were older than me, overwhelmingly older. They were people who were incredibly well-meaning, conscientious citizens who espoused a very vague kind of politics, mostly that many of them thought of as radical. They all definitely thought themselves as progressive in some way or another. Some of them were sort of New Democrats or liberals or Greens. Mostly they were against the idea of partisanship. Ideologically, it was all one big confusing mess. And looking back on those rallies and those meetings, you know, it's amazing how little it was actually about. You know, this was supposed to be the united Canadian, the real Canada striking back against the conservative takeover, which granted the conservatives were really bad. But some of these people were talking about Stephen Harper as a kind of Mussolini-like dictator or something, which I hope it won't be controversial for me to say that in, you know, 2009, the weak conservative minority government was not the beginning of Canadian fascism. It was really bad. It wasn't a Canadian fascist movement. The main thing that animated everyone at these meetings was hating the conservatives. It was anything but conservative, which later became a a phrase in the national lexicon and a way that a lot of people said they would vote in 2011, later in 2015, anything but conservative almost always means liberal. I mean, in 2011, the NDP was able to kind of capitalize on um, Jack Layton's popularity, this breakthrough in Quebec, 
and the kind of falling liberal poll numbers, and it was briefly able to kind of win part of that constituency. But in 2015, and obviously this is anecdotal, I have no way of proving this, but I'm quite certain that all of those people I met at those meetings, I mean, I guess I do know some of it from, you know, face being still Facebook friends with people and stuff. They all voted liberal, right? Mm-hmm. They all voted for Justin Trudeau. They all voted for Canada is back, hope and hard work, all these kind of things. Well, you remember that election, the NDP was in the lead for a while. and That's right. Uh, then the support collapsed in Quebec. And I think there's probably a 20%, there's maybe 20% that will vote for either liberal or NDP, depending what's ahead. That is what people say. And I mean, I think under certain circumstances, that's kind of true. Um, but I have now experienced the anything but conservative phenomenon enough times that uh-huh. I'm pretty convinced that it's just, I mean, I, I'm sure there are people who earnestly, they feel that way. But, you know, there's the the great Beaverton article that's like lifelong NDP supporter to vote liberal again or whatever. And I think <laughs> that really captures something very real about Canadian politics. But the reason I was thinking about all of this, you know, in addition to the fact that there's this American resistance, which combines extremely, I don't know, hyperbolic language about treason and foreign, you know, conspiracies and stuff with this extremely shallow diagnosis of what's actually the problem with Donald Trump being president, right? You know, it's that he's insulting the dignity of our institutions. It's that everything everything was basically okay until he took over. And we just have to re- press the reset button and get, get back. So it's, mm-hmm. it's very bemusing combination of the language of radical urgency on the one hand, and then also this very shallow critique of what's going on. And everything comes full circle. And now that the Canadian liberals are, you know, embroiled in this uh, ethics scandal with SNC Lavalin, which we've talked about uh, in the last few weeks, we're seeing what I can only describe as kind of a radicalized version of this constituency I described that's coming coming out of the woodwork. People for whom the election of the Trudeau liberals in 2015 was this culminating triumph, this uh, getting winning the country back. Not for any particular reason, not because there was any kind of program that they thought they were voting for, or because the country was actually making some kind of great leap forward. The point was that the Trudeau phenomenon all gave it gave us all permission to to feel that that was happening, to just breathe a big sigh of relief and sort of go back to you know often a very kind of complacent attitude about what the country is and and how little is wrong with it and now with the snc lavalin scandal the trudeau image kind of having been whittled down all the you know he's an environmentalist he's a feminist he's whatever you know he's going to do politics differently and ethically that's really been chipped away steadily by his conduct and by the conduct of his government and so what what we're seeing now is so similar to this this particular type of Democratic Party partisanship, small L liberal partisanship that you see in the United States, where it's just anything that is not institutional liberalism, even when it loses to Donald Trump and endangers everyone, you are not allowed to criticize it, even if you're criticizing it for not being progressive enough. That's bad. Because would you like the conservatives to win? That's right. And this is kind of the endless cycle of Canadian politics. You know, this is not just an electoral phenomenon. This isn't just about people's hesitance to vote for the NDP or whatever. This is about people narrowing their horizons of politics when it comes to how they vote, but also how they think and how they do activism, if indeed they do it at all. Narrowing their horizons to a point where really the only respectable, noble thing that anyone can do, the only thing that's not a danger to the country is basically do apologism for the liberals, even if it's vague and meta. Um, but you know what I'm what I've been seeing on the SNC Lavalin stuff is not even that. It's just the mass slips, and all that there is is just angry partisanship and and weird sort of conspiratorial stuff about like you know these two cabinet ministers that are out, Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould. Liberal social media right now, or like liberal adjacent social media, is is just chock full of this weird stuff about what are their what are their dangerous motives and you know that kind of stuff some of it does seem to be getting kind of close to conspiratorial boomer meme you know uh, territory and definitely to occupy democrats territory if people remember that that page yeah, yeah. that benighted facebook page from a lot of liberal supporters you often hear sort of a contradictory message which is both that the ndp is you know, not ready for prime time, that it's too extreme, that it's not realistic, 
but also that there's basically no difference between them and the liberals anyway so why not just vote liberal the coalition government for those who were excited about it uh, part of the excitement seemed to be the fact that well at least we've at least we finally dealt with that right it was this popular front model and I was very excited about it. You know, at the time, uh, it was it was everything the horizons of my politics, as narrow as they were at the time, could really accommodate. And I was very excited <laughs> about it, just like I was extremely excited about Obama in that <laughs> fall as well. I mean, I don't, I'm not going to expend too much energy on ex- explaining what the differences between the Liberals and the NDP are. But I mean, this this thing where in Canada people collapse social democracy and small liberalism into the same category really just does betray i mean literally i mean whatever you think of the ndp even if you're on the left and you're someone who's critical of it it just comes from it's it's just historically a completely distinct phenomenon from what the liberal party is the liberal party is a party of elite brokerage that arose out of the need for cooperation between you know the quebec and and anglo uh, establishments, you know, economic and cultural and political. It's a party of, I don't know, a particular type of elite statecraft. You know, the NDP comes out of prairie populism. It comes out of Methodism at the turn of the century, what was called social gospel. It's just a completely different phenomenon. And even though you can argue that there's been, well, convergence is the wrong word, the, the NDP doesn't really have the radical critique of capitalism that it once espoused, it's still just ideologically distinct in a big way. Like, if you compare the platforms in 2015, um, you know, the liberals were in favor of means testing social programs, the NDP was in favor of creating universal, you know, new universal social programs. That is a very discernible difference between how liberalism and social democracy approach, even in the 21st century approach, social problems. They're just categorically not the same thing. And of course, the liberals, you know, even when they do gesture kind of vaguely at the progressive left, they get into government, they don't actually do any of it because it's embracing that is more about branding because they know that there's a sizable constituency of, I don't know, small p progressive or center left voters that they can capture by kind of gesturing at that. But anyway, I think back on those meetings and, and those rallies in 2008 and 2009 and how, how, how kind of far we've come since then, but also how little seems to have fundamentally changed. Um, and uh, I guess I'll just conclude by saying, not looking forward to the federal election this fall. I think Justin Trudeau should go on Joe Rogan. <laughs> he did go on the West Wing weekly podcast. Did you know about this? Yeah, I, I did know about that. Uh-huh. I, he, think, I think if he goes on Joe Rogan, because today there was that widely circulated clip of him making fun of the indigenous protester. Yeah, thank, um, thanks for thanks for do- your donation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so that's how truth and reconciliation is going. I think he should he should just kind of embrace the edge lord, you know, triggered snowflake thing and <laughs> And go on Joe Rogan and shore up the young vote. So, actually, you know, something. since you brought that up, something else I want to say is it's really funny to me. This is maybe a bit of a digression from what I was saying before, but the conservative reaction to Justin Trudeau has always fascinated me. Jonathan Kay had a, had a piece in uh, the benighted publication Quillette recently where he was talking about how, you know, yeah, the Trudeau's kind of, he's finally figuring out what unpopularity looks like because he's run this paternalistic style of government where, you know, he thinks the government can, you know, tell people what pronouns to use and that, you know, he's, he's talking about feminism and he's doing this and stuff. And it's, you know, it's this genre of conservative reactions to liberalism where, you know, when I look at all the bullshit woke stuff Trudeau does, it's really no different than what, you know, Starbucks does to seem woke or whatever. It's, it's branding, right? Mm-hmm. It's so obviously just shallow branding. The correct response to it is that I don't care about your International Women's Day you know, Instagram posts. I don't care about your yoga poses or whatever. You're selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. But conservatives look at this and what they see is quite different. They see a conscious project of social engineering. They think Justin Trudeau is a radical social reformer. And that is astounding to me. Well, I mean, you know, he, he would be if, if he had the clout. I mean, he, if, <laughs> if, if he had... If, just, the, if the political system would let him, he'd if, be a if, radical. If he just had a few more seats in parliament, he would fix the pipes in those uh, indigenous <laughs> yeah, reserves. All the boil water advisories would end. And, and, and he, would, he wouldn't be buying, the, you know, pipelines on behalf of oil companies. He would be, he'd be doing away with yeah, fossil yeah. fuels. Yeah, politics is the art of the possible. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter matter that he has like a 200 seat (laughs) in parliament or whatever (laughs) anyways thanks to our kind of unique position where you know we're canadians who spent a lot of time talking about american stuff and watching too many clips from 
you know, CNN and MSNBC, this funny parallel between, you know, the hashtag resistance and our own resistance uh, occurred to me. And I wanted to share that memory. Well, speaking of the hashtag resistance, it was eating crow this week when it when they found out that Donald Trump was innocent of all charges. <laughs> I mean, what, what a foolish misunderstanding. <laughs> Turns out he was a good guy after all. And, you know, for over two years, I think a lot of the resistance was sort of hoping that, you know, this could be the Watergate moment. Mm -hmm. You know, there is precedent for journalists and investigators holding a president to account and eventually leading him to step down. There's even precedent for a president being impeached. So why don't we hop in our DeLoreans and head back to 1974 to watch the downfall of Richard Nixon in All the President's Men. There's been a break in at Democratic headquarters, and they were bugging the place. Woodward, Bernstein, you're both on the story now. Don't get up. Redford. I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? I'm not here. Hoffman. Hi, uh, this is Carl Bernstein of the Washington Post, and I was just wondering if you can remember... All the President's Men. The story of the two young reporters who cracked the Watergate conspiracy. White House. Howard Hunt, please. He might be in Mr. Colson's office. Who's Charles Colson? Did you know uh, Howard Hunt? Well, the White House said he was doing some investigative work. What do you say? They stumbled into leads. Certainly it comes as no surprise to you that Howard was with the CIA. No, no surprise at all. They tripped over clues. We'd like to see all the material requested by the White House. All White House transactions are confidential. This whole thing is a cover-up. It's right on our nose. And piece by piece, they solve the greatest detective story in American history. At times, it looked as if it might cost them their jobs. You guys are about to write a story that says the former attorney general, the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in this country, is a crook. Their reputations. Why is the Post trying to do it? I don't know. Perhaps even their lives. You know, in the wake of Donald Trump's election, and I think, you know, in, in the kind of year leading up to it, there was a real revival of, you know, kind of these tropes about the inherent nobility um, and virtue of journalism as an enterprise and its kind of role as a vital guardian, institutional gatekeeper in, in, demo in a democracy. And when Donald Trump won, journalism was going to save us from the age of post-truth that he was ushering in. I, I can't remember if we talked about it or it, if you've if you've seen it, but uh, there's the the Gawker documentary on. Uh, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, right. So if, if any listeners have seen that, you know, it's it's very good in many parts, but it ends with this quintessentially kind of 2017, 2016 panic about you know the assault on truth and um having run through all these examples of like genuinely heroic examples of of you know journalism at its best it's all of a sudden it's uh don lemon and jake tapper and people like that you know elbowed by trump officials and things like that and it's like this is the only thing that can save us but in the last week it's turned out that a big part of journalism as an institution of one of the major narratives that it's been invested in in the United States over the past few years, which is, of course, the, the you know, what we can broadly call Russia Gate. There's been a tremendous amount of falsehood, bad reporting, um, in some cases, just outrightly incorrect reporting, a whole wing of American politics and millions of people invested themselves in this idea that Donald Trump was had perhaps colluded with the Russian government, that he was even perhaps a some kind of Manchurian candidate who was a KGB asset or something like that. And, you know, if we are to take the line that's being quoted from the Mueller report, um, remember Mueller was the cop who was going to ride in and... I remember the, it vaguely, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. was the cop daddy who was going to ride in <laughs> and, and uh, rescue American institutions, rescue the Republic from Donald Trump. You know, the report says that they can't find any evidence of collusion. Didn't exonerate him. Well, <laughs> quote, unquote, quote. <laughs> well I'm, I'm not sure what, I mean, Donald Trump is such a repugnant, corrupt person. I'm not sure he's beyond exoneration. <laughs> um, I mean, except perhaps by the almighty. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but I mean, the, the central tenet of this narrative does not appear to have been true at all. And at its worst, this narrative, so I mean, at, you know, there are people that, 
I guess, bought into this or bought into a part of it in in good faith um, and tried to be as honest about it as they could. At its worst, this was, you know, Rachel Maddow doing like Glenn Beck style chalkboard, you know, connecting the dots, you know, sweeping generalizations out of like these small fragments of data. And all of this, my read of it was always kind of a political one. You know, it's always seemed to me that since 2016, there has been an ingrained and visceral psychological need within institutional liberalism in the United States to believe in this story, because some Democrats and some liberals they simply cannot, they won't process that they suffered a, what was basically, what was a political defeat at the hands of this reality show host, that their candidate, who was, for many liberals, the perfect candidate, the idea of what a candidate should be, that had the best resume, who had an entire, you know, generation of liberals invested in the idea of her destined descendancy to the presidency, that 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 all came crashing down. So they had to, it seemed to me anyway, a big part of the, the Russiagate story and why it kind of caught on so much was because uh, there was this need to account for this in some other way. It wasn't because of political reasons and uh, it, wa- it wasn't because the Clinton campaign was, was bad and that Donald Trump, and it certainly wasn't because the institutions of American democracy are frail at best and have been decaying for decades thanks to a, a completely bankrupt bipartisan consensus. No, no, there's this external factor that we can bring in and and blame for this because the fundamentals of the country are sound. American democracy was was and is fine. And so that's why I was a skeptic of this story. And I guess the reason I wanted to watch the film we watched was because I think that all the president's men and more broadly, I've been really the Watergate scandal more broadly, is sort of what gave birth to a lot of the kind of original motifs and tropes of this, you know, journalism as heroic enterprise, because Watergate was a time when investigative journalists, you know, they really struck gold and they and they changed the course of, uh, of American politics. Well, I think you're being unfair to journalism now. There were a wonderful series of articles about Alan Dershowitz not, not having any friends. The Washington Post continue their heroic work with articles about how you shouldn't yell at Sarah Huckabee Sanders <laughs> when she's having dinner and various articles about why fossil fuels are actually good by people who work for fossil fuel companies. <laughs> but here's the thing, you know, like obviously journalism when it's at its best, it is all these things that people it is the fifth estate. It's a it's an institution that's crucial to democracy. But let's just take the American media. What is its scorecard of, on these these big stories for the past few decades? I mean, you watch any newsreel from the Red Scare, and it's Senator McCarthy is questioning the commies, and uh, and Hollywood smells red, and that's why they're kicking out these ten screenwriters. <laughs> No more propaganda on our screens. You know, when CNN, when its ratings, like its kind of, uh, you know, baptism of fire was when it figured out that you could embed with the U.S. military during a war and basically just act as a kind of de facto state broadcaster. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not heroic at all. Uh, The Iraq war was, I mean, I think this is another thing that made me and I think, you know, other people of our, you know, generation with our experiences skeptical of the Russiagate narrative is that we've seen, you know, we've seen the US media get something as important as Iraq fundamentally wrong, be far too deferential to institutional power. Even the liberal media, you know, the New York Times backed, you know, the Iraq war, its editorial board backed the Iraq war. And famously didn't publish certain stories that would have inconvenienced the Bush administration Mm. until after the election. Mm. I cannot think of a single high profile example of any of the figures in the media who, you know, were basically Bush administration boosters, many of them liberals, did they face any accountability for any of that? Well, uh, they're all commentators on cable news now. That, all the, that's what all the, all the all the all the Bush administration people actually executed the war. That's just the like nighttime lineup on MSNBC now. They're all talking about Russia and mm-hmm. you know. And before that, it was all the Clinton administration. <laughs> like th- these are TV journalists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been to journalism school, and and there are two contradictory feelings that you get 
ideas that are sort of baked into you at journalism school, particularly the one I went to, which was a pretty uh, high-toned one. Yeah, pretty, uh, pretty. Will went to a pretty elite school, it, folks. It, it was a good school. You learn about journalism history, and you learn that you hold the powerful to account, and that you have a combative relationship with the powerful. And then you also find out how cool it is to be at an elite <laughs> journalism school, and oh my god, we're going to get to go visit NBC News now. We're, we're going to go to the White House. You're going to get, yeah, yeah like... We're going to wear a land who's who's the guest speaker anderson cooper is coming in that's so cool i'm gonna meet diane sawyer who, who, who spoke at your convocation uh what what sort I of walter cronkite like figure spoke at your convocation? I, I can't remember who it was but i i did i did meet brian williams at one of my classes wow so big <laughs> that, that was pretty cool uh, and you know you can see it with the white house correspondence dinner so cool to be with a bunch of celebrities. Do you remember how cool everyone thought it was when, you know, Obama did the roast of Trump or whatever? Yeah. And like, you know, it wasn't just that we, the pe- the people watching at home thought it was cool. It was like all the journalists were like, our president is such a badass. Yeah. He's, he's so cool. There are moments like that where just the, the sycophancy of... You know, at least the the insider portion of the, you know, Beltway media class, the way it behaves. And then, you know, in addition to being taught that you have to have a combative relationship with those in power, you're also taught to be neutral and objective. Uh Uh, Which means defaulting to institutional power at all times. Right. It's not exactly, (laughs) it doesn't exactly work, does it? I mean, I remember when I was at journalism school, Occupy Wall Street was happening at the time. Uh And and I used to go down and To Zuccotti Park. To Zuccotti Park. And I remember sort of looking at it and You see Zizek there? I saw Michael Moore there. there. (laughs) But I remember looking at it in sort of a detached way, almost. Look at all this passion. Mm. I feel like that's kind of a journalism student's Mm -hmm. point of view of it, you know? And And I'm not particularly proud of that looking back. But, you know, before the Washington Post became... The, the newspaper that, that keeps Ilhan Omar in line. <laughs> it, it did have Watergate, and it did have two uh, firebrand journalists. Bob perhaps, you, Wo- perhaps you've heard of them. Bob Woodward, played by Robert Redford, and Carl Bernstein, played by Dustin Hoffman. All the President's Men needs no introduction, one of the classics of American cinema, uh, the movie that set the template for the journalism movie genre, everything mm-hmm. from Spotlight to The Post to uh, i don't know whatever else. frost nixon frost nixon and all follows, all your favorite films follows in the footsteps of this movie the movie that launched a thousand journalism careers a movie which helped dramatize the mythos of journalism and and make it you know intoxicating and, and exciting and i mean to be fair for for good reason because for a movie that's in a way so boring you know <laughs> it is quite exciting I enjoyed watching it again, and I was struck by how if this movie came out now, it would be regarded as this almost esoteric art movie if it came out now. People would watch it and be like, boy, it's impossible to follow. You know, when, remember when Tree like, of... This is one of those smart movies that I don't get. Remember when Tree of Life came out and yeah. people went to see it, and it was almost like people talked about like it was an affront. <laughs> Like, it has no story. Why are there... People would be like that with this movie now. Because if this movie came out now, it would be a much more conventional, like, buddy comedy story. Well, you you pointed out, and it was was so funny how, you know... You know, there's no introduction of really who Woodward and Bernstein are. Like all the all the exposition is just revealed through watching them do their jobs. Um, they have no conversations that are not related to the, yeah. to the task at well, hand. Well, I was making the point: if you remade this movie now, there would just be some arbitrary thing about there'd be like a love interest. One of them would have played by like Eva Green or something that would have nothing to do with the movie, or would have only the most like tangential connection to the movie. And Woodward and Bernstein would have some more dramatic scenes that weren't about the job well they would have to they would have to overcome some tension it'd be like yeah. it'd be like uh they're both hot shots and like we need them to work together how are we going to get them to do that yeah and jason robards would like have a scene where he dramatically <laughs> puts them together and it's like you the slob you're gonna work with you the hot shot yeah and it's like what I, I i can't work with that guy yeah he's, he's only, a he's, he's a loose cannon nine months <laughs> and you know there'd be there'd be the quibbling scene then there will be a scene where it's like that that's how you eat your hot dog? No, this is how you eat a hot dog in D.C. Yeah. And then two-thirds of the way in, there'd be a dramatic falling out, and then they'd come back together. 
Well, and you're also making the point that this movie actually looks like the 1970s, right? Everything is hideous color tone. There's all these, oh, um, yeah. there's all, the, the palette is ranges from kind of puke green to puke yellow with like some oranges in between. No period piece would Nauseating. have the courage to depict the 70s as ugly as it was. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's got like horrible fashion. Uh, Dustin Hoffman for much of the movie is dressed like Dick Van Dyke in the sort of, with that river scene and that's animated in Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> like the super califragilistic yeah. scene. All the furniture is just hideous and there's bad carpeting and the cars look terrible. All the middle managers in the smoke-filled rooms, you know, have like big guts and stuff. Whereas oh, yeah. if you made it now, it would be all like John Hamm. John Hamm like... would be Ben Bradley. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Bob Woodward, it would be a guy even more handsome than Robert Redford. It would be... Uh, it would Cr- be like, Cr- yeah, Chris, Chris Hemsworth, Hemsworth yeah. or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> And Bernstein, the kind of mousier, uglier one, would also be, it would be like Timothy Chalamet or something. <laughs> Kit Harrington. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a movie that bravely captures just the minutiae of journalism. It's a movie that, I mean, it reminds me that not all boredom is the same in mm-hmm. movies. Movies can use boredom very strategically. And you and you made the point that this movie is using it deliberately. I think you're right about that. I think so. Like, there are so many red herrings. There are loose ends that don't get tied up. There's a, just a morass of names and data. It's, it's kind of impossible to just keep track of every single player. There's that one scene where Redford's sitting at his phone and the camera, maybe over 10 minutes, sort of slowly closes in on him as he's juggling two phone calls. It's not even really about following exactly what's happening in those two phone calls and how they relate to each other. What you're supposed to register is the intricacy of the the kind of move he's trying to pull and the determination with which he's pulling The fact that he has to juggle so many things in his head. The calls aren't being recorded, so he's got to make all these little notes Mm -hmm. connecting all the dots on a little piece of paper in front of of him. He's got to do this while, uh, you know, he's got another guy on hold who he's he's trying to manipulate in a different way to to get a different set of facts from. I deal with a lot of important people. People who work for the committee? Hello? For the, for the committee. The committee to re-elect the president. Yes. You see, I raised that money in, in cash, and uh, I, I have a winter home in Florida. Now, Is that uh, Miami? Uh, uh, Boca Raton. And, and, and uh, I didn't want to carry all that cash around. Now, you can understand that. Oh, of course I can. So I had it exchanged for the cashier's check. And how do you think it got into Barker's account? Uh, I, I know I shouldn't be telling you this. There are lots of scenes of them going back to people and back again and saying, oh, you know, can we come in for just a moment? You know, can you... Just one question. What if I say an initial and you can nod? Stuff, scenes that are sort of wildly repetitive. Yeah. But through the repetitiveness, it's almost like lifestyle porn. Like a certain (laughs) kind of person would watch this movie and be like, yeah, that's the hard work of journalism. Those scenes of digging through mountains of boring data, hmm. that's hard work and that's real journalism. Imagine like how boring all that work would be. It's boring now, but imagine doing it without the internet. Oh my God. Like, like when just to find out the most basic facts to like even pursue the thing that you need to you have to like call a library and get records and you have to go through those. You can't just search on LinkedIn for where people work or whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, I've done, I've done lots of extremely boring journalism work and I guess you have too. And it is incredibly boring and it almost never, you know, even when there is a story that's kind of interesting, it all, it never, you know, for 99.999% of journalists, it never leads to like a Watergate or whatever. But I think this movie does, you know, aptly capture how boring the minutia of it really is. And it's interesting, the movie climaxes on Inauguration Day. The last scene of the movie is Inauguration Day. Yeah, it's for, 72. For Nixon's second term. And Woodward and Bernstein are watching it on TV while they're pounding out their big explosive Watergate story. The one where they got the big scoop from Deep Throat. And the movie just ends after that. You see a montage of headlines that would come for the next two years, but it just stops because the movie is simply interested in the minutia. Mm. It doesn't really care about anything other than that. Yeah, and again, if you made the movie now, like the last 15 or 20 minutes would just be like 
music swelling like you know an eagle like an eagle crying and like a pan shot of like the lincoln monument or whatever as as you know nixon is humiliated and there'd be a a shot of him getting into the you know the helicopter and doing the peace sign or whatever you'd have to have all that and there have to be a lot of like pomp and circumstance around it yeah one of the only moments when this movie kind of indulges to i guess sentimentality is the penultimate scene where Hoffman and Redford show up at Jason Robart's house in the middle of the night and they say, we've got the scoop, you know, Deep Throat has told us everything. And Robarts has that famous speech about, well, there's nothing on the line except the First Amendment, the presidency, the freedom of the press and the future of the country. Just be sure you're right. And it's kind of like, you know, after over two hours of, you know, Wading through the muck. Yeah. I guess the movie has sort of earned that, yeah. that little flourish. But it's not even that big of an emotional payoff. Like, it's not even that... Like, like the, 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 the highest emotional note in the movie is still very, like, subtle and quiet yeah. compared to what it would be in a movie now. So this movie is, among other things, almost single-handedly responsible for the career of Bob Woodward. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think even more than, than, the, than book. the book itself. Yeah. Just having him played by Robert Redford. And... Bob Woodward, I can't claim to be all that familiar with him except as a name that I often see at, you know, the airport gift shop or... <laughs> next to, next to like, books with quotes of the Dalai Lama and, like, The yeah. Economist, The World in 2018. Or, like, if you're at Goodwill and you see <laughs> those books he was churning out during the Bush administration. Right, yeah. decision makers. Decision makers. Yeah. The main thing I know about him is that he wrote that book about John Belushi, Wired, which pretty much the whole Belushi family and uh, all of his friends said was uh, wildly distorted. Uh, yeah, before they published that, his publisher was like, look, there's all that's on the line is the Constitution and the First Amendment. Yeah. Make sure you get it right. <laughs> the the, the future of the Republic. Of people's ability to watch the samurai sketch again. <laughs> yeah, the Blues Brothers. There's an article by Joan Didion, a famous article in the New York Review of Books that was kind of a hatchet piece about him. And I'm just going to read a, a quick quote from her. Washington, as rendered by Mr. Woodward, is by definition basically solid, a diorama of decent intentions in which wise, if misunderstood, and occasionally misled stewards will reliably prevail. Its military chiefs will be pictured, as Colin Powell was in The Commanders, thinking on the eve of war exclusively of their troops, the kids, the teenagers, a human story. The clerks of its Supreme Court will be pictured, as the clerks of the Burger Court were in The Brethren, offering astute guidance as their justices negotiate the shoals of ideological error, a human story. The more available members of its foreign diplomatic corps will be pictured, as Saudi ambassador Prince Bandar bin Sultan was in the commanders, and in Vail, gaining access to the councils of power, not just because they have the oil, but because of their, quote, backslapping irreverence, unquote, their directness, their exemplification of, quote, the new breed of ambassador, activist, charming, profane, unquote, yet another human story. Its opposing leaders will be pictured, as President Clinton and Senator Dole are in the choice, finding common ground on the importance of mothers, the ultimate human story. So, you know, it's it's funny that Woodward, to this day, is sort of coasting on this reputation as this guy who spoke truth to power when... Based on everything I've read about him, he just seems to be somebody who loves the corridors of power and he loves getting exclusive one-on-one interviews and he basically just transcribes them in his books, you know? Well, this this speaks to the tension we're talking about, about how in the enterprise of journalism, you know, there's so much sycophancy and obsequiousness and deference to institutional power and it coexists and in some ways is kind of weirdly symbiotic with these brief flickerings of kind of revelatory, you know, truth-telling and investigative journalism. But those are the exception. They're not the rule. The rule is something very different. The rule is is much more banal at best and is sometimes, you know, simply just obsequious to power. Excuse me, what is your name? I'm Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. Markham. Markham? Mr. Markham, are you here in connection with the Watergate burglary? You know, to bring up this movie's uh, spiritual prequel, The Post, briefly, (laughs) uh, which is not as good a movie as this is. I haven't seen it. Um, I'm sure you'll love it. Uh, (laughs) I don't think it's a very good movie. Well, I like Tom Hanks. I like Meryl Streep. I love the music of CCR. So what's not to like? Something that the movie did that I think is kind of interesting is 
it essentially positioned the Washington Post's decision to publish about the Pentagon Papers as this like flip of the coin, arbitrary decision. Much of the Post was about how the Ben Bradley character, who in that movie is played by Tom Hanks, and Meryl Streep, who's the publisher, how chummy and friendly they are with all of the Washington politicians, and how you know all the people paying for the paper are friendly with the Washington politicians, how they don't want this story to go. And essentially, the story's not going to go until Meryl Streep just arbitrarily says, um, I, I guess we'll publish it. And, you know, of course, the movie fucks it up in the last 15 minutes by becoming this sort of uh, sappy right. uh, thing. But I guess what I like about The Post is that it's very much about how unlikely it was that this story ever would have been published. These papers are run by rich people uh-huh. who don't want these stories published. I mean, I have heard another reading of the film, which is that the film is actually kind of neutral on what like it's not consciously mm. observing that mm. you think spielberg that's what he meant to convey with that uh i'm just going by what's up there on the screen i'm sure we'll do an episode on it soon, yeah, yeah, so we, we can test right. my theory yeah we will yeah i think if all the president's men is missing anything it's some acknowledgement of the fact that newspapers are not actually neutral arbiters they are owned by people who own them for a reason Uh, Yeah, I mean, they're commercial enterprises. Yeah. They're deferential to advertisers in a big way. And, you know, there's there's a reason why the media was more interested in covering Russiagate than they were, you know, the teacher strikes. Teacher strikes, strikes, yeah. You know, there's a reason that the Washington Post op-ed section publishes the sorts of op-eds they do. Mm Mm-hmm. It's not out yet, but um, I just uh, filed a a review of a a pretty good book on the American media's treatment of the working class kind of over the past few decades and how the working class as a class has basically vanished entirely from the U.S. media. And a big reason for this was a kind of commercial turn that newspapers took in the 1960s and 70s, where as a business decision, they decided that they were going to go for a different kind of audience that was basically an upscale kind of middle class audience Mm. and that the language of journalism uh, slowly kind of bent itself around that. So the labor beat basically disappeared and it was replaced by um, a kind of lifestyle consumer type beat. Mm. There are some really good case studies in the book. Uh, For example, in 1941, there was a major transit strike in in the city of New York. Tens of thousands, I believe, uh, of transit workers went on strike. And the New York Times' coverage of the story is mostly about uh, the contract negotiations between, you know, the workers and and management. It just pays passing reference to the, you know, thousands of commuters inconvenienced by this. Contrast that with very similar reporting from decades later, where all the reporting is framed around, you know, commuters stranded, by, and then it's like all the quotes are just middle class people are inconvenienced because these like blue collar people are striking for a 5% raise or whatever. Personal finance journalism, that kind of thing. Uh, all these things have replaced the labor beat. And when the working class does appear, you know, this book is, I think, intervening at an important time because there's this whole kind of genre of books now that are like, you know, these like hillbilly elegy books that are like these prole whispering books, right? Which are like, we're going to sit down and we're going to decrypt the working class for you coastal people. Mm-hmm. But and you know what, what that usually means is um, we're going to give you a very politicized reading of a working class that we're going to represent incorrectly as you know, basically white and male and conservative, right? Mm-hmm. The other book, who's a professor at the University of Iowa, it's not as if the references to the working class or something have disappeared from the U.S. media, but it's when it, it when the working class appears, it always appears, it's always a political angle. It's never just like a workplace, it's never through the lens of a workplace or a labor story. An example would be something like, and there's a whole chapter in the book on this, you may remember the case of Carrier in Indiana, which when Donald Trump was president-elect, you know, just a humble president-elect, um, you know, he made this announcement that, you know, he'd made this deal with Carrier and he was going to save all these jobs and this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And much of the U.S. media report is, is like, this is Donald Trump delivering for his, you know, white working class conservative base, completely ignoring the fact that the workers at this plant were absolutely not uniformly white and male because anyone who thinks the work working class means white male or even conservative by definition is total reductionism. Beyond that, you know, the U.S. media, with the exception of, you know, some local media outlets in Indiana, basically overlooked the fact that the United Steelworkers local was very involved in the job actions at the time. 
and only really became part of the story because Trump decided to attack the the leader of the union on Twitter. So, you know, essentially the real existing working class, you know, in this major story was just, you know, the story only existed because Donald Trump happened to be talking about it for completely opportunistic reasons. It was completely misrepresented and the actual, you know, people themselves, the working class is the majority of people. And yet, how is it that the you know, lives of the majority of people do not really fit in with the, the business model of the media and journalism anymore. You know, I was thinking when I was reading this book of how, you know, if you open like the Globe and Mail now, you know, there's whole sections about just things that only a certain type of upper middle class person would care about. There's so much kind of consumer journalism. Uh, you know, there's like the autos section and things like that. Now, I know that several major Canadian newspapers now, you know, basically target people, like exclusively target people making over $100,000 a year. I once heard this acronym bandied about, I'm not exactly sure where it came from, that was, uh, it was POMS, this is describing the market share that was trying to be uh, captured here, and it's professionals, owners, managers, and entrepreneurs. Hmm. And when, you know, newspapers of record that are, you know, the the main repositories for investigative journalism and, and that do the heavy lifting of reporting, when they are that kind of bent around, you know, the needs of advertisers who are not looking for a mass audience, they're looking for a very particular type of middle class audience, journalism is going to suffer. Um, the book doesn't really explore this, but you know, in Owen Jones's book, Chavs, um, and also in his second book, The Establishment, he talks a lot about, and this is, you know, related to Britain, but I'm sure, uh, I'm sure the same thing applies elsewhere too. you know, the actual socioeconomic backgrounds of many journalists, you know, the industry is kind of narrow in, in many places, like in terms of who it draws from. And that that bends the reporting too. I and mean, in Britain, it's the situation is particularly acute with people, you know, coming out certain schools, basically acting as kind of like, de facto Soviets for different parts of the British establishment. But it's important to remember that, you know, journalism broadly defined, um, you know, daily newspapers especially used to be much more inclusive than they are now in terms of going for a mass audience. And, uh, and a lot of reporting was much better and more, I don't know, socially inclusive as a result. Well, you know, there is one newspaper in Canada that targets the worker the the normal person and it's the Toronto Sun. You know, I'm Thank actually goodness they do. I'm really glad you brought that up <laughs> because another another thesis of this book is that the kind of retreat of traditional media from reporting which is, you know, reflects the working class and is kind of addressed to the working class. The author contends that this creates a gap which allows, you know, kind of populist, faux, faux anti-elitist conservative media to come in mm-hmm. and sort of pivot. You know, obviously they're not doing, it's not like they're doing labor stories. What are they doing? They're doing, they're doing their own reductive caricature of the working class, which is uniformly like white and Christian and male, mm-hmm. um, basically. Um, and which is, you know, hard done by, by the, the lib elites and their, you know, pronoun crusades and whatever, whatever the, you know, conservative moral panic du jour is, you know, they're pivoting towards this politics of cultural resentment, you know, and in the case of the newspaper you refer, you were referring to, you know, uh, as with so many right-wing tabloids, just like disgusting, vile, you know, race baiting and, and all the rest of it. You know, the results of the latest Gallup poll, half the country never even heard of the word Watergate. Nobody gives a shit. You guys are probably pretty tired, right? Well, you should be. Go on home. Get a nice hot bath. Rest up 15 minutes. Then get your asses back in gear. We're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing's riding on this except the uh, First Amendment of the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters. But if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. You know, I remember when I was working as a reporter at the Woolwich Observer newspaper, um, I went out and interviewed these two nice old ladies who ran the Elmira Children's Garden Club. You said, were you were on the committee to reelect, ma'am? Committee to reelect? <laughs> so, uh, w- w- one more thing. Um, <laughs> I'll say an initial and you can nod. <laughs> Uh, so I, you know, I met one of them at their house. Who's and... pulling the strings at the Rotary Club? <laughs> <laughs> met one of them at their house and, you know, very nice. I think they probably gave me a cookie or something. And then <laughs> as I was on my way out the door, um, this very nice old woman said to me, oh, oh, one more thing. Um, I know you people in the media often do a, do a 
spin on your stories. <laughs> I'm sure we can trust you, right? What was the story about? It was about the Elmira Garden Club for children. <laughs> and and I And you and you were writing a real hatchet oh, piece. Oh, yeah. I know I know off. you. Yeah. <laughs> I was quite uh, charmed by that and I said, Oh, you don't have to work. <laughs> Now I'm gonna tell you the way it has to be And if you pay attention, I'm sure that you will see Just relax your muscles And once you've hit that spot Solution is quite clear. For if we both can hit it now, the bells you're surely Don't get your gun.